This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. Hello, this is Heather Rose Jones with the Lesbian Historic Motif Project. Today we're interviewing author T.T. Thomas, who also goes by Tara. And Hi there. And we're going to talk a little bit about your historic fiction. I've been browsing through your catalog, and I notice you've got a, sort of a favorite era right around the turn of the, you know, I don't know the, whether we call it the turn of the 19th century or the turn of the 20th century. I guess it's the uh, turn, the of, turn the 20th. of the century, anyway. Yes, <laughs> yes. right yeah. around 1900, plus right. minus. Right, late 1900s. How did you get interested in that particular period? Well, several things. I got interested in, well, things were changing in a very big way in the world during that period of time with the uh, results of the Industrial Revolution were being felt in the areas of technology, transportation, education, just about every subject. We were moving from the Victorian era into the Edwardian era. So I actually start usually around 1890, particularly 1895 to the end of that decade. And Queen Victoria died, I think, what was it, 1902. Everything changed. Uh, warfare changed, beginning with the Boer War, which was uh, an English uh, conflict in uh, South Africa, or one that they got into. Then with the beginning of World War One, it changed again. And so basically, I write anything from 1890 to 1950, <laughs> but specializing in the end of the uh, 1900s through World War One and World War Two. Yeah, times when uh, everything is changing like that are really fun to set stories in, I know. They are. I mean, even the time between the two wars, particularly in Germany, is a fascinating time prior to the rise of Hitler and the Nazis and the whole how World War II came about. Anyway, so that period of time, there's a lot of activity taking place in the world. In particular, the world of women uh, is changing at this time. That fascinated me. I originally became very interested in the person of Anne Lister. Uh-huh. She actually lived a century, I mean, uh, yeah, a earlier, century earlier, yeah. 17, uh, late 1700s. I think she I think she died, died in 1840. Yeah, thereabouts. All right, but there was a woman who uh, lived life her own way. Uh, we wouldn't know a thing about it because she kept diaries in a code. A distant relative found the diaries, uh, was encouraged to burn them after he broke the code and realized what her books were about. She loved women. She was very explicit in her diaries about her romances with women, and there were numerous women. And then he didn't burn those diaries. What he did was he hid them behind a panel of the family estate. So flash forward to the 1980s, 
and a woman comes along named Helena Whitbread who decides that her project is going to be to decode these diaries. She wrote a book about it called I Know My Own Heart, a modest review of what she had decoded. There's a second volume that she did as well, titled No Priest But Love. Exactly. Yeah, those diaries are so inspiring in terms of sources for historic research. They really are. And I would say that that single, well, both women, Ann Lister and Helena Whitbread, were incredibly inspiring to me. Although Um, I I have to say Ann Lister was not necessarily a nice person. No, no, she wasn't. She was, you know, a crotchety old bitch, but (laughs) she was very... uh, Very human. She was very... Yeah, very intelligent and very familiar with the classics and would often uh, entice a woman that she had met with some somewhat vague reference to a line in one of the Greek or Roman classic that revealed where she was coming from. So, I mean, she found a way. That has always intrigued me, but until I heard about Ann Lister, the only other women I had heard of were the, uh, I'm going to say this wrong, the ladies of Langolan. Sangassen. How do you say it? Sangassen. Sangassen. Anyway. <laughs> it's uh, tricky. Butler, Eleanor Butler and, and Ponsonby. And I love what Jeanette Winters- Winderson says that those two ladies, they lived in a haze of female virtue and deep friendship. Um, as opposed to Anne, who pulled on her trousers each morning and went out into the world because she had money and she had an independent mind as she lived her life. Those two sets of people were specifically very inspiring. Thirdly, I would say I've done a great deal of research on Queen Victoria. I wanted to know where where everything came from. Uh Uh-huh. So what other sources of historic research have you enjoyed using? I mean, the, the, the lives of the women are, are very inspiring, but for looking up like setting and details yeah. of the history. A lot of it, Heather, I get from journals of professional societies like the historians or the geographers or the sociologists. A lot of what I do turns around language. So, believe it or not, the OED is a really great source of research to me. And I noticed that uh, letters and correspondence are a major theme carrying across several of your books. Yes. Have you studied historic correspondences to get inspiration for that? Yes, I have. I've studied it in the sense of fiction, but also in real life correspondence. First started thinking about publishing, I got to know another author named Anne Herndon. She wrote a book called Glida and the Brotherhood of Philander. She made reference to a site online in in her foreword about the man who has done a great deal of research um, on the old Bailey transcripts, the uh-huh. courts yeah. in London. Oh, I love and, court records. Yeah, yeah. And I just got so involved reading these court cases, um, you know, including several cases of, of women who posed as man and wife, the discovery of it, the outrage and the whatever the response was. And it often wasn't the apparent lesbianism that got such people into trouble. It was because they had some kind of domestic disagreement. Uh, Yeah, yeah. 
I promise that we're going to come around to the specifics of your novels, but okay. I was also interested in the settings that you've used. You know, you've got stories set in the America and in England and the one that's coming out soon in Morocco. Right. And I was England, wondering what England your, and Morocco. Yeah, I was wondering right. what your own background is. I don't like to make guesses based on people's accents, but you sound solidly American. I am. <laughs> However, I was born uh, in England, uh, outside London, in a small little village called Tadley in Hampshire. My mother uh, was Irish, and my father was an American officer, flight uh, uh-huh. officer in World War II. And then I was born, but because of my father's citizenship, of course, I was American. And I was educated here in the United States, in Illinois, in fact. So I was looking at specifically, there's a pair of stories you have. The first one, The Blondness of Honey, which yes. I think is starts starts out or it's set in the San Francisco area? Yes, it is. Uh-huh. And that's that's in the 1890s, so before yes. the big quake, but during the big but boom of the San Francisco era. Right, that's right. And the the women in this story attend Mills College, which oh, is... Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> right, which is in Oakland. So, and I, my wife is from the Bay Area, so I had a lot of, I had a, a Baedeker, I had a guide. Yeah. I had a guide for a lot of that. And some of it takes place on the Point Reyes Peninsula, some of it in the city, meaning San Francisco. So can you give us a uh, sort of a plot synopsis of of what happens in that story? We have our main protagonist, and she has a childhood friend, and they are attracted to one another. And this, as you say, is, you know, 1895 or whatever. It's really an odyssey. It's, It's a great big book that takes everybody all the way across the country to Boston and back to Chicago and there is another woman involved and it it's about how the women dealt with the phenomenon of same-sex attraction against the backdrop of what was going on historically in this country this was also a period of time where we had the columbia exposition in chicago the world's fair and i wanted to make it a saga Uh well you know first book i had to write war and peace right (laughs) so so it looked to me based on the description and i apologize that i haven't read your entire over yeah i apologize (laughs) i can't remember the plot no go ahead that that there's a a a story vivian and rose that it, it says that the framing of that story is that it is being written by one of the characters from the blondness of honey exactly this was a a novella that I actually wrote before The Blondness of Honey, but I didn't publish before. And it's in the first person, which is tricky. A lot of it, again, letters, notes, the kind of thing I like to do. That so, kind of so cor- reading the, the description of it, it, that it, it talks about mistaken identities and abductions to Barbados. And right. it sounded to me like it was one of those over-the-top gothic novels like Jane Austen Juvenalia. Right, uh, right. And, and that the, the idea of it being written by your character gave you maybe the, right. the, the freedom to make it really over the top. 
And it was. It was over the top. And it's very dramatic. And, uh, I mean, hard on sleeve. And, uh, yeah, abduction, Barbados, New York. I pack a lot into a, a small book. So, yes. And, and it was because it was being written by someone who was a writer at the turn of the century, that century. Uh-huh. Full yeah, it really had that echo to it. Yeah, and it had that, it has that feel when you read it, or at least I hope it does. So um, the, the, the book that I think I was first aware of your name in connection with is A Delicate Refusal. Oh, yeah. So that's, that's the, the World favorites. War One England and two women who have a somewhat unusual type of relationship in the context of the book. Yes, they do. I introduce, without calling it this, the concept of a demisexual. Back in the days um, prior to World War One, after and during World War Two, the worst thing that could be said about a woman is that she was frigid. It took us till now, I guess, to understand, or in the last 20 years, that is not the case. That is, it's it's not some kind of an ailment. Um, let's let's have, define that for our listeners. So demisexual yeah. is someone after. who feels desire only after they've fallen in love, to put it kind of in a shorthand. That word. So what I did is I created this completely oversexed and had her falling in love with uh, someone who is basically a demisexual. They are so flummoxed by this attraction. And oh, and by the way, that woman, the second woman, is married uh, as one and, was <laughs> yeah so anyway they they're neighbors what happens basically is that they both almost have a nervous breakdown in response to their own relationship the one who is you know completely um sexually typical is uh she's suddenly going blind sort of and that that sounds an awful sim- lot like the, the, the old wives' tale about uh, what makes you go blind. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> was, it, yes. was it meant to be symbolic that way? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Thank you. You're the first person who seems to have noticed that. But anyway, and the other one becomes um, partially and intermittently paralyzed, has trouble walking, standing. In a, it would be what certain psychologists from certain areas would have called sexual hysteria. Socially, it was called frigid, frigidity. The women who had to bear the brunt of these uh, diagnoses suffered quite a bit. So it would take someone like the the other neighbor to, to bring her out of it. And so this is their story, again, against the backdrop of the eve of World War I. Uh-huh. Well, I had to get rid of the husband, for one thing. Um, so I <laughs> so you sent him off, off to war, war. huh? <laughs> <laughs> and I had, to, I had to get rid of a couple people. So in reading the descriptions of your books, I get the sense if that your, your books are kind of on the sexy side. Well, Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, but it's like no body parts. I mean, I am the queen of the metaphor when it comes to the actual sexual encounter. I don't do fade to black, but, you know, I don't name body parts either for the most part. That was a conscious decision because of the era in which I'm placing these people. Yeah, that's that's always tricky is, you know, what would a 19th century woman have called what she was doing? Right. I mean, the Victorians were far more adventuresome than they're given credit for being, but the 
language of their liaisons was very metaphoric. To bring this full circle, I start out with someone like Ann Lister, you know, who writes in code, and I end up with people who speak in metaphors. I would like to move on to your newest book, because by the time this interview goes live, it looks like Mistress of Mogador will be out in print. Yes, it will be. That looks like uh, quite a uh, adventure story. It is an adventure story. It's basically the story of a woman who trades in inheritances with her brother. He gets the estate, she gets the uh, shipping company. He's driven it into the ground and it's almost bankrupt and she has to salvage it. It's fine with her. It's her adventure. She goes to Morocco. And and, and gets involved with a Berber woman. It's, uh, <laughs> yes, a Berber woman, and who works for a Jewish man who works for the Sultan. Anyway, she has these three ratty old ships. She meets this Berber woman who seems to know before she does that there is a chemistry going on. So what, what's uh, the most, challenge of writing a character or a setting that's so very different from your own? Uh, yeah, when, when you were writing about Morocco and Moroccan culture, what are the difficulties of sort of... Huge, <laughs> huge. I don't, I don't speak Arabic. I, I had to, uh, it's taken me almost three years to do the whole thing. Uh, the Berbers have always tried to maintain their own culture against the backdrop of having been the conquered. Anyway, so I had to do a lot, a lot of research. Again, there are quite a few Moroccan um, researchers who write in English, Arabic, and French. So I was using Google Translate quite a bit. I can sort of stumble through French. It was fascinating. I had a fabulous time writing this book. So if people want to learn more about you or follow you in social media, where should they go? For my website, it's the www.tthomas.com. And I'll put all this in the show notes so people can find it easily. On Facebook, I have tthomas-author. I don't use that much because I actually interact with a lot of people, so I just have my T.T. Thomas, and I'm very available on that. Twitter, blogging, any other platforms? Uh, I do Twitter, but it's mainly political. Okay. So, no, I'm not (laughs) blogging right now. Mm -mm. Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming on and letting me interview you for the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the experience. I have, Heather. Thank you so much for inviting me, and it's been fun. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 